Father, our hope is in you. Because of who you are and what you've done for us, we can sing those words with confidence and with joy, knowing that you have not only promised us new life, but you show us in many ways how you will deliver us to new life. Father, we ask now that as we open your word and as we ask you to speak, that you would do a mighty work in our hearts. We pray that you would convict us of our sin. We pray that you would show us your grace. We pray that you would reveal yourself to those who don't know you. And Lord, we ask that you will comfort those who are weary in need of your great attention and love. We pray that all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, you can be seated. Merry Christmas. I'm not sure if you can still say that, but my tree's still up. So Merry Christmas to you all. We'll be in Revelation chapter 7, so if you have a copy of the Word, I would encourage you to take it out. We'll be guided through a passage in particular, so if you're new to either this church or church altogether, what we do now at this time is just open up the Bible and and ask the Lord to let it speak, and and someone at this position will try to explain it as best we can and apply it to our lives. Before we get into the actual text... Long time ago, on April 11th, 1970, a spacecraft launched three astronauts towards the moon to explore the surface of the moon. It was the opportunity of a lifetime for three of these astronauts who hadn't been there before. The, the buildup was intense, but three days after the launch, Apollo 13 aborted its mission in the faint hopes of survival. Approximately 2,000 miles from Earth, one of the astronauts was asked to do a routine procedure, and then two minutes later, the astronauts heard what they described as a pretty large bang. Something had exploded inside the ship. And after this, the spacecraft's commander reported seeing out of his window a gas of some sort leaking into space, and the gas was their own oxygen. And it was that commander, James Lovell, uttered one of the most famous phrases in American history, Houston, we've had a problem. In what became some, in what became some of the most strenuous days in NASA's history, despite limited power in the ship, an increasing of carbon dioxide, the loss of cabin heat, shortage of drinking water, and the critical need to make unique and bizarre engineering repairs, the ship's physical operating, to the ship's physical operating systems, the crew returned safely to Earth on April 17th, six days after the launch. This was seen as a triumph of grit and ingenuity and, frankly, God's goodness to these astronauts. It became an emotional template of what it means to rescue someone. You do whatever it takes to rescue those people. This event, though a huge loss in in various ways, will always be painted as a success where man risks nearly everything to save another man and deliver him home. I bring up the story because of its instinctive view of life, where life is worth living, everyone acknowledges. Life is worth maintaining, and when life seems to be in trouble, life is worth saving, and death is always seen. No matter who it's about, death is always seen as a tragedy. And part of the reason why people don't want to die is the tense question of what's next after this life? What's on the other side of my life? Even though I might be confident that I've lived a good life or I can be bold in saying I gave it my all, there's still that wonder in people's hearts or consciences where they go, but what's on the other side? 
Our passage this morning gives us a small but great picture and an answer for what life looks like for believers or followers of Jesus or Christians. Life to many of you is really difficult spiritually or physically, so in many ways you long for what's next. And can you have confidence and hope in what is next in your own life? The trial or trials that you're in makes your hope for the other side all the more deep in your desire. Now the chapter before our passage ends with Uh, A big climactic question where after unleashed terrors on the earth, people are asking the question. Enemies are, are hiding themselves in what seems to be caves, asking who can survive the wrath that seems to be poured out. And maybe even the readers of this text, those who would call themselves followers of Jesus, those who have committed their whole lives to Jesus, they might be thinking the same thing. Are we going to survive the wrath that is being poured out on us? And so John writes, in many ways, throughout this book, the answer, yes, the Lord will maintain his goodness to you because of what you have shown towards him. So let me read to you from Revelation chapter 7, starting in verse 9 through the end of this chapter. The words of the Lord say to us, through the writing of John, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. So today I want to continue our short seasonal series about the songs that were either sung about God or to God that we see kind of spiking up in different parts of the scripture. A series that we've titled Songs of Salvation where we've seen from Old and New Testaments that the the presence of God or his revealed will towards his people causes people to shout out in poetic form. Or it causes them to sing to him or sing about him to other people. These songs have, have in many ways, wonderfully followed the, the regular narrative of Scripture. And, and so, because they're so different than what's around them, they, they kind of spike up like skyscrapers in the middle of a field where you go, all of a sudden we're walking through a narrative and boom, there's poetry. So we should stop it and see what that's about because surely the, the authorial intent of that passage means something unique to us. 
These songs have wonderfully shown us a pathway of, of God being good to his promises to his people and ultimately delivering his son to his people. It's why we celebrate Christmas every year because of what that promise meant for us. So if you came on Christmas Eve and you came back, maybe this is your second time here, welcome back. We're so thankful that you're here. We're going to continue in what you would have heard when Ryan preached on Revelation 5. And in the passage for us, for us this morning, I want to bring your attention to a song in Revelation that's short, but it's big in terms of what it wholly means. And within this passage, there are things that, that seem to, at least me, seep to the top, or they might boil over if this is a pot on the stove. Three things that, that bring our attention to understanding why people in this passage are standing before the throne and crying out in song to the Lord. You'll see here in this passage that it's God who's in control of a world gone bad and he's preserving his people. And he's preserving his people for his glory and for their good and their response is singing. So in three ways, here's why. The first, if you're using an outline, the triumphant saints in this narrative or this passage are singing because they are being delivered or they are delivered from tribulation. These triumphant saints are singing because they are delivered from tribulation. Now before this passage, there, there's a series of seals that are being opened by the Lamb. If you just turn over to chapter 6, it starts at the beginning. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. And then the next paragraph, when he opened the second seal, and then the third seal, and then the fourth seal, and then on down in verse 9, when he opened the fifth seal, and the sixth seal, and the things that are being opened or unleashed on creation are wreaking their havoc on those who are wicked or against the king. And so you might be thinking, if you're a logical person, if four, five, and six are coming, then there surely is a seventh. But what happens in our, in our word is that there, there seems to be a stopping point where the writer, John, slows down the story and he takes a step back and he, and he starts writing what he sees. So we see this at the beginning of chapter seven where he starts out by saying, after this, I saw four angels. And then in our passage, nine verses later, after this I looked up and behold. John here is recounting a vision that the Lord revealed to him on what it would look like for the Lord to preserve and seal his people finally before the wickedness is being destroyed by God's wrath. So if all of God's wrath is being poured out on the world, what's going to happen to God's people what God shows to John, and John shows to us in the book of Revelation, that between the sixth and the seventh seal, God actually seals his people permanently. Chapter 7 tells us who will survive the wrath of God and the Lamb. It's those who are sealed by God. This innumerable group are those who have been saved from every nation and every tribe and every tongue. Before our passage, John talks about it in what he hears, and he hears a specific number, and this number is 144,000, and basically anytime you hear a really big number in the book of Revelation, it's symbolic for a whole lot of things or a whole lot of people. And so John hears this number, 144,000, and then he, and he looks and he sees something that he can't calculate. He calls it a multitude, and they're coming from all tribes and all nations and from all tongues. And he sees that those are the people who are being sealed 
by God and his protection. So, so for us, what that means is God is sealing all of those people all throughout the church age by his good protection. Now, just as an aside, when we see things like from every nation and tribe and people and tongue, here we see the end of what many of our efforts can be and should be. Where, where we see the person next door to us as not just our neighbor, but someone who we should want to reveal the goodness and glory of God to. Or when people come to us and say, hey, I have a crazy idea. I want to go to Africa and devote my life and my family's life to an unreached people group in Africa. We go, absolutely, because we know that at the end, that the Lord will keep all of the people from all parts of the world. And so we see your mission as a part of that. Now, last week, or on Tuesday, or on Monday night, Ryan's sermon, he talked about some of the apocalyptic or parallel natures of what's happening in the book of Revelation. I would encourage you to go listen to that, where he'll kind of explain. Now, I say that because if you're new this morning, you might read different parts of Revelation and go, that is not the same way that I would read, like, Harry Potter, or Star Wars, or Mary Had a Little Lamb. Some, some big things are happening here. Some, some different kind of characteristics of how things are playing out are happening there. So go listen to his sermon. And so what we see from that here are there are big numbers and incredible heavenly views. And, and all of a sudden in John's story where he's describing something that he sees, an elder comes beside him and starts talking to him. Now, how many times have we been in a dream where all the all of a sudden crazy things are happening and then someone talks to us directly and we're like, how did you get here? One of the most vivid dreams of my life is that I was swimming away from a shark in my front yard and then I was doing math right after that. So all of a sudden, we, we, and I only bring that up to say some of these things might seem weird, but they're not really that weird. They're actually regular when we're seeing John zoom in and then zoom out and people are asking him questions and then they're giving him an answer. And what he's seen is people standing before the throne and they're worshiping God and they're clothed with something uniquely. And what he sees is something that's so important that it causes him to stop describing the different things of these seals and to insert this into the word for us. Because it was important for God to give comfort to his people to reveal this to John. And then after he sees these people worshiping the Lord or people falling down on their faces or even the angels are around those worshiping the Lord, an elder appears to John and asks John a question. Which is, which is peculiar because surely that elder knows the answer. He's been there longer than John has. So John rightly says, surely you know the answer to this. And the elder describes who those people are wearing the white garments and what they came from. They came from a great tribulation. And this phrase, this great tribulation, isn't a technical term with a singular meaning. You probably know in your own life what tribulation looks like more than you think you do. A tribulation consists of pressures to aim at compromising your faith. They're often both inside and outside the church, inside and outside your family, inside and outside your class at school, where they're often trying to point you away from God's goodness and to certain kinds or certain forms of idolatry. They're things that make Chris, Christians say, come Lord Jesus, because they have such an intense pressure on life. When we think of tribulations, we think about the young boy who's being 
bullied at school because he wants to pray before school begins. Or we see the girl who doesn't want to go out with her friends just that one Friday night and so they post things about her on the internet that that make her want to literally take her own life. We see the, the lonely wife whose husband isn't doing what he's called by God to do, to lead her to the throne. So every night she goes to bed wondering, is this what life is really going to be like? And it, will it be any better on the other side? We see the man who's lived a long, laborious life, maybe working in the field or in a machine shop, and he all of a sudden can't use his hands, can't feed himself, and he's looked down on by others as being lazy or inconsiderate of his family's needs. And it causes men and women alike to say, come, Lord Jesus, and end this suffering. Or, or we might think of even more intense tribulations. If you've, if you've ever gazed at the book, the Fox's Book of Martyrs, where it describes throughout all of our recorded church history people who were assaulted or killed because of their witness of Jesus Christ, because they were proclaiming the name of Jesus, their heads were taken off, or their limbs were pulled from their body, or they were burnt at a stake, or they were thrown to a bottom of a lake. And the Christians around them might wonder, one, is this Christian life even real? And if it is, is it ever going to get better? And so John has given this vision to a church that is in trouble in the world, that's being stamped out again and again by Roman armies, basically to encourage those saints as they gather to keep pressing towards heaven, because it is hell here on earth, but heaven is glorious as you are clothed with white robes and singing of the deliverance of the God before your life. Tribulations appear to Christians in in three ways, I think. The first one is tribulations are typically normal in a Christian's life. Whenever you're putting yourself out in front of others and witnessing to the character, glory, and salvation of the Lord, the devil and his partners will want to go after you. It's also Christ-like. Tribulation is also the people of Christ participating in the sufferings of Christ. That's why, in many ways, whenever we talk about membership here or baptism here in particular, we say when we put you down into the tank, it may not get easier for you once we bring you out because you're being buried with Christ. And even though you are raised to new life, it will get better for you, but you may go through things here that make you want heaven all the more. So it's normal, it's Christ-like, and then last, it's sanctifying. Tribulations make us like Christ in many ways. They, they chisel down at our hard hearts or they take things away from us that we may have not known that we've worshipped those idols in our lives. or They've removed pieces or people or things from our life that, that now allow us to worship God more purely. J.C. Ryle says that trials and tribulations are intended to make us think, to wean us from the world, to send us to the Bible and to drive us to our knees. So we see here that they are being delivered from the tribulation, which obviously makes us want to know when is this tribulation going to happen or has it happened and we missed out on it or is it currently happening and we just need to understand what it really means. 
Well, we have a couple of clues in the scriptures that tell us about when this tribulation is going to happen. Daniel 12, chapter 1, Daniel's a book in the Old Testament, if you're new, where, where he's given certain prophecies for the people. And he gives us this clue that the tribulation will occur in the last days or the times or the time of trouble. The New Testament gives us a more vivid view of when the tribulation or when tribulations happen. In Mark 13, it says, For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. Where this verse helps us think is that it puts the tribulation in the last days beginning at the crucifixion of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of him going to the heavens, and then the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Essentially, when we think of when is the tribulation going to be, the answer is we are right in the middle of it. When we think about these people who are being sealed by God in Revelation 7, these people, what was represented by a number in the first eight verses, are now represented by a multitude. They're, they're shown to be people from all over the world who speak all kinds of different languages, who grew up in all different kinds of backgrounds. Basically, everyone who God saves and everyone who he pours out his spirit and brings to himself, all of those people will be delivered from tribulation and into his presence. The people in the vision are those who are being saved and their er because their earthly lives are completed. And we see this in verse 15 and 17 where God previews this new life or this glorified life that's given to those who have placed their trust in Jesus as their savior. In Daniel's tribulation, the opponent persecutes the saints because of their covenantal loyalty to God. And some will leave those who, uh, some will leave those on God's side and start persecuting those who are loyal. And I don't think it's accidental that John, in writing Revelation, mirrors in many ways words that are being expressed through the book of Daniel. I don't think it's accidental that this follows the cycle of instruction that happened in Revelation chapter 1 through 3. Where, where John is shown letters from Christ himself about particular churches. And some of those churches are at great risk, the letter says, of leaving the faith because of the persecution. But in turn, they will start to persecute the church itself. So John is writing this book to the church at large. And I think what he's doing is saying, hold on, keep the faith Keep fighting the flesh. Keep fighting your sins. Keep fighting against the satanic rule of the world. Because look, look what's been revealed to me. Look at the throne. All these people are worshiping the Lord and they're clothed in something that they didn't give themselves, but that they're clothed by robes that are washed in the blood of the Lamb. It is miserable right now, Christian, but it won't always be. Don't flee the faith that you believed in, that you gave your life to, because look at the throne. All of those people who are singing about the glory of God, you're sealed in there too, if you are in the faith. Redeemed believers will worship and serve God and the Lamb enthusiastically, and I think what's so awesome is that they're just allowed to worship Him in His holiness that he sees the people before him as his own children and he allows them to stand and sing to him. And they're doing this by waving palm branches. 
recalling the words of Leviticus or Zechariah, these these festivals that, that Christians would have practiced after a great conquest where they commemorated either God delivering them for something and now they're commemorating God delivering them to himself. It's like a second Palm Sunday for Jesus where the first one was him coming into town, riding on a donkey, virtually being delivered to the hands of his enemies for an unfair tribulation and trial. But now his former enemies, those who once were far off, those who once were against him in his cross, though he conquered their sin and brought them to himself, his people are being delivered to him after four horsemen wreak havoc. And they're in his presence And they're waving victory symbols for all of creation to see. Rejoicing in the redemption bought by the Lamb. And their victory over their persecutors and tormentors. They're rejoicing in God's protection, God's sealing, God's deliverance of them to final rest. Salvation is often known as God completely forgiving us of our sins. And I love how this passage uses that word but also uses a another sense of this word too where he's not just forgiving his people but fully and physically delivering his forgiven people to his presence preserving them delivering them as a guarantee of their safety and these white robed people are celebrating this victory in heaven rejoicing at their salvation The vision revealed to John enables John to see the tribulation already in place. And that great tribulation had begun at Jesus' own suffering, brought by Jesus' own blood, securing the payment for the sins of those who he would die for. It would be understandable if you recall what's written in the book of Daniel chapter 12 and verse 10 where it says, Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined. But the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand. But those who are wise shall understand. And then we take that and apply what's written in Psalm 119, where I cling to your testimonies, O Lord, and let me not be put to shame. So we see here first that, that the Lord is delivering his people to salvation And we get this glimpse of what it looks like on the other side of life. For those who might be facing much, or for those of you who might be facing just an awful, awful life, John is telling you to hold on. Because one day you'll stand before the throne, and you'll know that you get to be there, right? You're a forever season ticket holder in that throne room. Those chairs are yours. Those footprints are yours. I think there's great application for for those of us at Desert Springs. So I'm talking in particular to the members here. Remember the audience of Revelation. Churches under persecution and enthralled in tribulation. I, I think what this does is it causes or calls us as a church to fight together for this faith. To suffer together as people are going through unique times of tribulation. Or what they might feel is wrath from the world. Charles Spurgeon says that we should cast all of our troubles where we have cast our sins. And in many ways, people who are going through much, they might know the answer to what they need to do, but just your presence and your reminder in their lives 
allows you to uniquely point them to this throne that's being revealed to John. So fight together as we suffer together. Now, for non-Christians, if you're here and you're not a believer, place yourself in John's shoes. What would make you see yourself there? Maybe where would you be in that throne room or what would qualify you to be in that throne room? You, you might say that your own good life might qualify you to be there in the white robes singing the songs that other people are singing, but, but the scriptures are clear that, you're, that your good works are not good enough. Or, or maybe the clothes that you might think that you can put on at the end. You know, like maybe if you're studying for a test, if I can just cram at the last minute, I know I can get a decent grade. Maybe, maybe towards the end of my life, I know that I can do good enough things that'll get me into the room. Jesus Christ is the lamb who was slain on our behalf and is at the throne of God and only God can deliver someone from his death to life. So place yourself, non-Christian, in this room and ask yourself the hard questions. Do I belong there? What would make me belong there? What must I do to be in that room? Well, second here, we see that the triumphant saints are clothed in white robes. First, we see, saw that they were delivered from tribulation. The second, we see that they're clothed in white robes. The, the effect of the tribulation on the saints is expressed there in verse 14, that bringing attention to the attire that these people are wearing. They've trusted in the Lamb who brings them by his blood to salvation. Their enduring faith to the end demonstrates not only their love for him, you know, we first love because he loved us, but, but more so his powerful love and work in them. They have been released from their sins by his blood. And the object of their faith, their work, their aspirations, their affection showed itself in their steadfast devotion to him. They were changed once and now they're permanently in a place forever. Chapter 19 of the book of Revelation says that they are described as being clothed in fine linen, bright and clean. And in our passage, it says that their clothes are white, or another way to say radiant, or seen by others with splendor. And they became white by nothing else than, being, than their clothes being washed in the blood of the Lamb. Despite resistance, despite tribulation, despite the spots or the stains or the scars that they bring with them, they have been believing in him to deliver them and testifying to the Lamb's death as their only hope. And he took their sins away and gave them clothes that have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. Their tribulation refined their faith. Its pressure made them more Christ-like. It tested them. They looked at where they were going to go, and God preserved them. Daniel chapter 11 affirms that oppression and suffering come so that they may be refined, purified, made white until the time of the end. And here we see their deliverance brought them new clothes, Clothes that they couldn't make themselves. Clothes that Charles Spurgeon said, if it had one little thread of their own work, it would not be good enough. And so he gives them new garments that were washed in the blood of the Lamb. Now this is a symbolic description of the way that faith in Christ looks like. It's believing that God put him forward as the sacrifice or the propitiation and raised him from the dead and by that work, 
and believing in him, you are cleansed and he gives you assurance of forgiveness and the cleansing from sin. God is fully at work in the salvation of his people. It was, it was not only God who made people, but also gave new birth to people. And then here we see that it's God at work who ultimately delivers people. I sometimes get really hyped up when, when people say that what God does is he just simply invites people to himself. A.W. Pink says, were God only to invite, every one of us would be lost. We have to have God take over our lives in full. We need him to not only direct us in the right way, but also to give us new clothes. John envisions us understanding that those who belong to God are rescued. They're, they're rescued and delivered because they have washed their robes white in the Lamb's blood, picturing the cleansing work of Christ on the cross. The robes of the redeemed are white, not on account of our own righteousness, but because of the washing atonement of the lamb who gave himself up for our sins so the question is asked how do you get those robes now i woke up early this morning and i got really excited because i thought this is the sunday where we all get to wear our new christmas clothes and i got immediately sad because i remembered i didn't get christmas clothes this year we see something so spectacular In this passage where God is revealing himself not only in a glorious fashion, not only in a just and wrathful fashion, but also in a a very safe perspective where in front of him, those who are clothed uniquely are shown to be preserved for eternity. So how do we get those white robes? Those believing that the lamb has satisfied God's wrath on their behalf. Those that believe that Jesus has satisfied God's wrath on their behalf and consequently have been declared clean and righteous are allowed entrance before God, the one sitting on the throne. They alone can boldly enter God's magnificent presence and serve him because the lamb has reversed the effects on Adam's fall in our own sin. In in the sinner's place, Jesus stood condemned on the cross. Now in Jesus' presence stand those clothed in his blood-washed garments. An amazing picture of what this means for those who believe. And so if you don't believe, I, I want you so desperately to look at this passage and know that if you place your trust in Christ, the image that's given in Revelation 7 has you in it. Give your life over to the Lamb who redeems sinners. Repent of your sins. Turn from who you are. Because who you are, the Bible says, is not good enough. And turn to the one who accepts sinners and washes them with the blood of the Lamb and allows them to sing in front of him forever and ever. I'm reminded of Matthew 22 where Jesus gives a parable of a wedding feast And someone walked into this wedding party who didn't have the appropriate attire on. And he was confronted and remained speechless and then immediately put out of the party. This man without a wedding garment pictures those who think they can be accepted by their own righteousness rather than the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So the gospel call for those who don't believe is do not in any way trust in yourself. Do not trust in your good works. Do not trust in what you think should be done, but trust 
in God to save you, to deliver you, to save you from your sins and deliver you into his good presence. The big, another big question is, are those washed robes waiting for you to wear? So not only how do you get those, you get those through faith in Jesus Christ and the repentance of your sins, and are they waiting for you to wear? For a Christian, we believe that we will be wearing robes dipped and washed in the blood of the Lamb that allows us to be seen pure by the one who sits on the throne. But what about you? Do you know that you can come to Christ in the same way that those around you did? Denying yourself and believing in him, you can stand where we expect to stand. You can hope in the way that we have hope in all of our lives. Because outside of this throne room, you do not want to stand there. The picture that's presented are those who are in the presence of the Lord and it's everything good. It talks about him feeding them continually, giving them giving them drink when they are thirsty, giving them shelter when, when the sun is beating down. They'll, they'll feel the effects of sin and despair no more. But for those outside of the room, those of you who may not feel like you need to wear a garment or those who you might feel like you don't need to be in that throne room, the wages of your own sin and the placement of yourself in hell is something that will also last forever. And I beg of you, don't think that you can survive it. Right after the sixth seal, people were crying like little babies in caves, saying, who can survive this? Knowing that they can't. See the glory of Revelation 7. Run away from the terror of the sixth seal. And know that you will be accepted with the clothes that you would wear that have been washed in the blood of Jesus. God's redeemed washed servants are brought through tribulation and into his presence, preserving them from eternal judgment and allowing them to stand in glory with hope that fills them tremendously. And then lastly, we see number three, the, the triumph saints are standing and singing in salvation. The redeemed and heavenly hosts praise God and the lamb for the salvation that has been accomplished God gave, or John gave awesome descriptions of these people. He, he, he describes them as being accepted by the Father and by the Son. That they were just allowed to stand there is incredible. You know, they, they weren't falling down on their faces, which would be totally inappropriate or totally appropriate. They weren't running out of the back of the room that wicked people normally do. You know, at the night of Jesus' betrayal, when enemies of our Lord appeared before him and he looked at them, they fell back because of the power of his presence. But here, Christ's own stand before him, allowed to be stand before him. Maybe you've gone into the principal's office or your boss's office and you've been nervous just to stand. You might wonder if you need to awkwardly sit somewhere else or do I, do I, like, do I knock twice or should I come and get, do I need to wear a tuxedo? I'm not really sure how this happens. And here they're allowed to stand and they're only shown to be confidently singing to him. They were joyful. They sang praises to the Father and to the Lamb. And their worship was joined by all those who surrounded the throne. They had a spectacular sense of confidence before the throne. They were rewarded. They knew that they were there. We see this wonderfully at the Olympics when someone wins a gold medal. They stand so proudly on that number one spot because they belong there. 
And here will all the believers in church history be standing before the throne. Don't you know knowing that feeling of belonging there will be awesome? It will be incredible. The anxiety of am I in the right place will never be yours. But the confidence of standing before the Lord will be yours forever. And they say salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. Echoing the desires of what we have seen in the scriptures all over. Isaiah 49 says that they shall hunger or thirst. Neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them. And by the springs of water will guide them. This is from Isaiah. This is where God promises Israel that he will satisfy their need as they travel through the desert. But here we have this picture in Revelation 7 where God did in the wilderness, where what God did in the wilderness is magnified before us. He will protect his people, not just satisfy them, but keep them from harm forever and ever. Here we see that God and the Lamb are glorified because of the heavenly reward of redemption that rests in their hearts. And so they stand and they sing because of the salvation that's been given to them. And it seems to fill them so much. So in sum, think about chapter 7. I hope you see that believers were sealed and delivered from tragedy to triumph. That robes were washed by Christ and now are adorning them or covering them. And these singers were singing and standing before the throne of God and the Lamb. As I close, I want to remind you of what Jesus has said about himself earlier on in our scripture. Jesus described himself, described himself in John 6 as the bread of life. In John 6, 35, he says, Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. Revelation 7 then echoes this. When they're standing before the throne, standing before the Lamb, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. Jesus described himself as living water. Before a woman at the well, he said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And we hear this echoed in Revelation 7, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. Verses 16 and 17 use language drawn from other parts of the scripture where, where we see this culmination of Christ satisfying people's thirst by providing himself as the answer to their restlessness. The, the complete counterpart to their unsatisfied need, the, the springs of living water in their final vision of the city of God turn out to be a river of living water, more than enough for the needs of all. And he also describes himself as the shelter of them. God has notably described himself as the shelter of his people throughout the scripture. He says in Psalm 90, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Or Ezekiel 37, I will establish my sanctuary in the midst of them forever. My tabernacle shall be over them. And so we see again where they are before the throne of God, serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. And then finally, we see in this last part where it's talked about the Lord God being their shepherd. We, we heard Jesus say this in the book of John, 
I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. And so we see here, amazingly, in verse 17, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water and God, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now, I think that Revelation is full of striking images, but Jesus being the lamb and the shepherd is surely, I think, one of the greatest. Lambs are sheep, not shepherds, but Jesus here is both the sacrifice and the savior for his people. Standing before the throne, they can have the confidence of not only are they there, but they, they will be forever guided by the great shepherd. The shepherd who goes after the sheep is now the shepherd who stands before them as the lamb. So the question remains finally, will you stand like these people in glory? If yes, then how can you act like it? I think you can act like it with confidence in your identity. You can act like it in boldness with your evangelism, knowing that you want a whole other people standing before the throne like you'll get to stand before the throne. And I think you can also rest in the assurance that on this side of heaven, when it's terrible, to be honest, or full of tribulation, or full of trial, you will stand there singing, salvation belongs to our Lord. And if you know that you won't stand like these people in glory, then know that God saves sinful people through the work of Jesus by calling you to deny yourself Believe in his son's lordship and saving love to forgive you and trust in him to deliver you. Pray to God, friend, for forgiveness. Call out to the father for mercy because he will give mercy on those who call out to him. Seek maybe someone around you to help you or help you be guided in what you can look for in the scriptures to to show Jesus for who he really is and what that can mean for you in your life. The great benefit of this is that what's standing on the other side of this position of your own is the reception of God's love and God's deliverance. A song of salvation where we'll all be singing about the worthiness of the Lamb who was slain for us. The salvation that belongs to the God who sits on the throne. So if you know him, then rest easy. For soon we'll be before him. And if you don't know him, call out to him and he will hear your voice. Let's pray together. Father, we are reminded in this scripture how good you are to us, that you would even reveal yourself to us through John. When we think about what's before us and what's behind us, we know that all that is good and right is done by your will, your desire, your purposes, your work, and your spirit. So Lord, we we ask that you will increase in us a deeper desire to live out your love and to look forward to your coming kingdom. We pray for, for those of us who know you that you would comfort us by this vision of your throne room. Guide us and guide the many men and women who are facing great tribulation in many ways. And for those who don't know you, Lord, we pray that you will bring them to yourself that you would show yourself to them by this word, that you would capture their affections and cause them to see you for who you are so that we can stand beside them and sing to you, salvation belongs to our God.
Father, we pray this with confidence and joy. And in the name and the power of your son, Jesus. Amen.